0: Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Carrie Lorenz. Thanks for joining me in conversations with fearless leaders from around the world. We're going to discuss the mechanics of high performance, success, and failure, and what it takes to achieve more than you ever thought possible. Through the conversation ahead, I hope to challenge, inform, and even inspire you to move fearlessly to higher levels of performance. And maybe to go further, faster. And that conversation starts right now. Stepping into my office this week is Mark Polymeropoulos. Mark is one of the most decorated CIA officers of the modern era. He's a former senior intelligence service officer with an almost 26 year career in public service, but whom you've probably never even heard of, because he spent almost every minute of it in the shadows never in the limelight. Mark is also the author of the new book, Clarity in Crisis Leadership Lessons from the CIA. Mark, welcome to my office.
1: Thanks so much. It's a great honor to be here. I'm really excited for this discussion today. Thanks.
0: Oh, gosh, I am as well. You have had such a fascinating career. But take me back to the beginning, because I think a really compelling part of your story, your history is your multicultural heritage.
1: Sure. No. So, you know, it all goes back. You know, I think there's, you know, what is there a joke? Everything you learned, you know, in life, you learn in kindergarten. So, so, you know, you know I ended up at the CIA and, and, and my parents were not always thrilled with my career choice, but it's all their fault. And I'll tell you why. So, you know, when I, first of all, I was born in Greece. So my dad was Greek, My mom was American, but I was born in Greece. We moved to the States, but because of that, we went back every summer. So I had, my dad was a college professor. So I spent two or three months every summer through my entire childhood. And even, even, you know, into, into college on the Greek island of Mykonos. So not a bad place to be, but we ended up traveling. We saw the world. So I knew that there was something more. And then, and then the real seminal event was when I was ten years old. My dad, who was teaching for a year on sabbatical in a a North African country called Algeria, my mom put me on an airplane, and I was ten at JFK Airport in New York, and she said, "See ya," and I flew by myself (laughs) to Algeria, where for one month my dad and I, in an old Volkswagen minibus, drove two thousand miles to the Sahara Desert, just sleeping in desert oases and I, I certainly thought I was Lawrence of Arabia. I fell in love with the Middle East then. And, and, you know, even for, from that time on, I knew I wanted to do something more, kind of something bigger than, you know, I was, a, I was a middle-class kid from New Jersey, but I think I wanted to, uh, to do something certainly with public service, but, but definitely overseas and, and in the Middle East in particular.
0: So that sounds like that was a pretty, uh, a pretty serious turning point or an inflection point almost, if you will. Did your dad have any, um, because he was this professor, did he have any reading materials? Was there anything? Were you just, were you watching all of this happening, this really amazing culture? Were you reading a lot? How did you get to know that culture, become so familiar with it?
1: Sure. So, so you know, again, I you know, there's a picture of me that we still have in my basement in my house in, in, uh, in Northern Virginia, of me riding a camel when I was 10 years old. It's actually a really cute picture. Um, uh, but but so, so, you know, it was a part of the world that I became interested in. And then I just started reading a lot. And then, you know, I go back to another kind of, this was probably when I was in, in, you know, right before high school, I read a book by James Michener called Caravan. Mm. And that's about a young foreign service officer from the State Department, you know, in the post-World War II period at a time in Afghanistan, which certainly not like it is today, but it was a place where hippies were hanging out. It was this kind of magical, mystical place. And the book, like many of James Michener's books, was really rich with detail and, and culture and And, and again, I fell in love with that part of the world, a little bit different in South Asia, but, but essentially the same. And it's pretty ironic because, you know, I was on one of the teams, you know, in early 2002 in Afghanistan. And I remember sitting cross-legged in Helmand province across from some Afghan, you know, village tribal elders and thinking back like about 30 years ago, like I actually read the, read that book, James Michener, James Michener's Caravan, you know, what a crazy journey. Now, Afghanistan was far different when I was there, that's for sure. But uh, yeah, it's just a part of the world that I, that I fell in love with and, you know, and, uh, and and, you know, I, I wish even today, you know, obviously the pandemic has stopped travel, but I can't wait to get back to the Middle East because that's where actually I'm very comfortable.
0: So what's interesting, though, is that so you have this big cultural background, uh, you have familiarity with the area and you start going through college. And how does how does one become interested in service in counterintelligence or even in sure. national security service? What drew you to that?
1: So I, I, so I, you know, I, I, pretty, pretty, you know, early on, and when I was in college, I went to Cornell University in undergraduate time. You know, I, I studied international relations, and then with you know, kind of a focus on on the Middle East. So I had an idea that I, I wanted to specialize in the Middle East, and then and then I wanted to do something for the government. Um, I wasn't sure exactly what whether it was CIA, the State Department. Uh, you know, I remember, and you know, you'll find this. You know, this is in, in your neck of the woods. I remember applying to the Naval Academy, and then realizing and failing an eye test, so I couldn't become uh, a pilot, yep. which of course. Um, you know, uh, is what you did so successfully. And, and so uh, it just, you know, CIA became kind of this natural fit. And this is also a time when, you know, Tom Clancy brought his books out, you know, The Hunt for Red October and all the mm-hmm. kind of the cool CIA stuff. And um, and so uh, it was it was a pretty natural fit. I went and I did my graduate studies at Cornell as well and focused on um, North Africa, on Algeria, um, you know, obviously from that time when I when I uh, visited there when I was 10. And I did my master's thesis on that. And I had a couple of professors who were you know, just, you know, Middle Eastern experts. Uh, and then, you know, a CIA recruiter came on campus and I signed up to, to speak with him at a career fair. And, and you know, it's, it's pretty scary because as we talk right now, that was a long time ago. That's the only job I ever had. So as I wrote this book, Clarity in Crisis, as I'm talking to you today, you know, th- the book better do well because uh, I'm not sure what else <laughs> I'm qualified for at this point. I had one job in <laughs> my whole life.
0: Well, I would I would submit to you uh, that there are probably a lot of things that you could do. Um, and that path may not be really clear right now, but I think it will become much more so. But what I did find fascinating and diving into your book, uh, clarity and crisis, which is such a good good and I have to tell you, it's a really easy read. It's very well written, but that you didn't start off what I think is important when I've had the opportunity to talk with and work with fearless leaders just like you uh, is that the end game or where you are right now and what people might think or internalize as well you're so lucky look how successful you were or you were born to do this you must have known the path you didn't actually start off in the operational arm of the cia
1: right so i started off you know again i I had a master's degree so i was recruited in to the cia on the analytic side and so i did start my career i spent 26 years there 23 of them in ops but the first three years uh, as an analyst, and and it was a, it was it, to, to think about you know um, the training was outstanding because first of all I learned how to write I learned how to uh, you know about mm. critical thinking which is really important uh, and then you know I, I think I was hooked on the ops side though I took a, a what we call a TDY travel temporary duty travel to the Middle East when I was an analyst so I spent three months in the region and I fell in love with it and I said look I want to live there but I also I wanted to be I'm, I'm super outgoing as you can see I'm very chatty we um, could probably do this podcast for three hours. And we'll have a great time. I don't know, maybe the, the listeners will be like, stop him already. But, <laughs> uh, but, but ultimately, I, you know, I, I, I was a people person, so I wanted to switch over. So I went to my boss, who at the time was a guy by the name of who, John Brennan, former mm. you know former CI director in the future. And I said, look, I think I want to be an operations officer, a case officer, not an analyst. And he said, Mark, that's fine. Just like that. And I was like, well, wait a second. Can't you like protest a little bit? I'm like, was I that bad as an analyst? But we laughed about it now, even when he became director. And when he, we told this, when I told him the story and he remembered uh, but I did switch over. But it, it, I think it, it, it's a really good point because you know your life is a journey and your career is a journey. So I didn't leave CIA, but I did change jobs inside CIA, and so that's really important point to do. But it was just something that that I think I was better suited um, for a little bit of a, a, a different position, and, and I had the you know courage is the wrong word, but I just you know I I, I really wanted to to make that jump, and and I was I, and I did so, and I think I found much more success on the operations side than I would have if I had stayed as an analyst.
0: Well, I push back just a little bit on framing courage as not being the right word, because especially when you're first starting out or when you're young, or even once you get a little bit further on in any career path, if you've found success or you've developed a level of comfort, it takes courage to take that next step. It takes courage to trust yourself enough to go ahead and jump, jump to the next adventure, jump to the next challenge and trust yourself and your, and your curiosity and your willingness to not be good at something, right? to know oh, no. that eventually you'll figure it right. out.
1: Well, look, I, you know, and, and it, 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 the, the book is all about, you know, le- my leadership style, but based on a lot of failure and adversity, but along the same way, you always have to dare to fail. And so, mm-hmm. so, you know, it, it you know, the, the CIA training program for the operational side is a one-year program down at a you know, secret military base, which is not so secret in, uh, in Virginia. But ultimately, you know, there's a chance you fail. It's probably the same thing like, you know, going to flight mm-hmm. school. So you put yourself out there a little bit. Um, but that's OK. You know, and, and if I had failed that training, that's OK. I would have gone back to the analytic side. and I might have had a, a great career. But, you know, you, you have to be able to take that step and, and take that risk. And, and I think that that really was a lot of, you know, what I was about in my career is that, you know, you do have to push yourself getting out of your comfort zone is a really important part about your growth as a CIA officer. And and it's, it actually is a lot about my leadership principles because it's all about, you know, how you lead when, when there's a lack of situational situational awareness or there are times of adversity. Um, You know, that's okay. You know, we have to be comfortable in that. Um, But it all starts with, you know, maybe way back when, when I pushed myself to go from the analytic to the operational cadre and, Hey, you know, off I go for this training. If I'm, if I'm good at it, great. You know, if I'm not, I'll, I'll go back. I will say that I almost glad graduated the top of my class, but I, I failed one surveillance exercise. And to this day, because of my crazy type A personality, it still bugs me.
0: <laughs> and I would submit to you that that failure in itself probably has continued to push you that anytime you feel like you're going to settle or, or that you think you've done enough or it's good enough, you're like, I'm going to crank it up just one more notch.
1: No, you're Carrie, you're hundred percent right. It's even, yeah. you know, so I wrote the book. I'm a first-time right. author. I wrote the book. You know, I'm not a you know, and and it was based on all of my times, you know, uh, on the streets of the third world. So, you know, I don't know if this is gonna be taught at, you know, Harvard Business School, but but I think it's really appealing just to, to kind of regular people. You know, that's just it's just, you know, important to just kind of keep on challenging yourself and and you know, taking those risks. And it, it drives me nuts that the book is not right now, you know, number one on the New York Times bestseller list. That's wildly mm. You know uh, uh naive you know of course it's naive of me because uh, uh, but but that's that's what i want and i think i you know i torture Proper right. collins my publisher all the time because i was like why isn't it selling more you know why is it not number one and they're like oh i'm sure like every every uh you know marketing zoom call that we have they roll their eyes they go oh, here we have to go listen to him and for another hour
0: so right right yes
1: yeah. what drives me you know there's there's you know it's 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 a, it's a character trait i think it's also the type of people perhaps who become pilots same thing perhaps who become ci operations officers Um, you know, you are not satisfied and Mm -hmm. in retirement, I think I have to work on that a little bit, but that's, that is what, what, you know, drove me every day as a CI officer and it's driving me today as I talk about the book kind of around the country
0: so congratulations on your book by the way and uh it is a it is a maddening industry that i think also involves a lot of ouija board maneuvering um but we can talk about bestseller lists and all that stuff maybe offline or we can drop into a different section of a a different podcast or interview i know you're at the beach and so i don't want to keep you with that because that that requires probably a cocktail and a couple of hours to bring you back on the path of sanity but like i said at the beginning i love this book and what i think is fascinating about it is it's an easy read it's well written but more importantly or as importantly you've taken almost three decades of working at the cia you've taken the time to reflect and share what it actually takes to lead in high stress environments and even what that cost of failure can mean you know i'd I'd assume and just for a hot second here if you'll if you'll indulge me so many people are really fascinated by the secret nature of the cia and when you decided to to write a book i'd assume that similar to the military now that there was a a pretty in-depth approval process that you had to go through to even be allowed to write it how did you find that whole vetting process or what sure. they would allow?
1: So, you know, when I retired in July of 2019, you know, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I, I was in the process of writing the book, of course, but I also wanted to go out and talk to the media. And I, and I went to a mm-hmm. couple of mentors of mine, one guy by the name of Mike Morrell, former acting director of the CIA. Sure. And, I, and, I, and I, said, I, I said to Michael, I said, look, I, I think I, I wanna go out and speak about what the intelligence community, what the CIA is about, because I believe it's an indispensable institution and I think it's really misunderstood. And he thought it was a great idea. There's, a, there's, a, there's maybe you know, a handful of us from the senior intelligence service ranks who talk in the media a lot. And so, so I did that because I wanted to educate the American people. And in doing so, I work with the CIA's publication review board quite often. And I found them to be, you know, to be quite easy to work with. And so when I wrote the book, you know, there's, there's a ton of war stories. There's a ton of, of operational stories. And, and it's important because each principle that I talk about, I wanted to add kind of the flavor of what happened in my life as, a, as an operations officer to kind of make the, make the points. And so I would, I would worked with the, the, the CIA, as we call it, the PRB, the, the, the publication review board very mm-hmm. extensively because, you know, a lot of, you know, we just made sure you can't obviously have the identities of some of the, the assets uh, in there or the location. So I would say it's in the middle East. And a lot of these stories are about assets who, who tragically, some of them who have passed, or maybe they're not working for us anymore. So we really, you know, hid their identities, but I was really pleased with how much got into the book. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the war stories are, are so impactful because they make a point with each principle. And again, and, and a lot of it has to do with kind of the fundamentals that I talk about in the book, um, which which has to do with overcoming adversity and with kind of the key trait that I talk about all the time is the need for humility. Uh, right, and, and right. I was, you know, I, I worked well with them. Um, I didn't have any problems. Some people do, but, uh, you know, they were really good to me. So I really appreciate that.
0: Yeah, I was surprised as well, uh, reading through how much in-depth information and even details you were you were able to provide and familiar with Mike Morello as well, listening to several podcasts he's been on over the last several years and kind of dipping his toe into that sphere of, of sharing operationally what's happening without giving away too much is a really, uh, that's a tough needle to thread, I think, but I think you've done it uh, beautifully. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that experience was was a good one for you. But when we talk about the book, one of the things, um, again, that I I like about it is that you've listed these nine core principles or concepts in clarity and crisis that given I think really almost any situation wherever anybody finds themselves right now on their life journey would or should allow people to really come up with a smarter course of action, or making better decisions than where they are now if you indulge me for a second, I'll just list the nine real quick. And then I have a couple because again, we could do this rich roll style and talk about this for two and a half hours. Um, But we're not going to do that today. So maybe (laughs) maybe we'll have an encore. Uh, But you've got you've got these nine principles. The first one is the glue guy. The second one is adversity is is the ped the bed to success, which I love Um, the process monkey humility is best served warm. Win an Oscar family values, be a people developer, employ the dagger and finding clarity in situations. Um, But the glue guy I love probably because it parallels so closely my feelings about what it's like to be a part of a high performing team and everybody's roles mattering on an aircraft carrier. But help me walk me through how you see the glue guy being so beneficial.
1: So, so the glue guy or the glue gal, uh, and, I, and mm-hmm. I make that, uh, 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 that's an important point too, It's but that's finding that, that, you know, these indispensable members of your team who might not be the door kickers, you know, and, and, a, you know, mm-hmm. in, a, in an SEAL platoon or a fighter pilot, you know, but, but they're indispensable parts of your team that, that the success of the, of the unit, you know, it's, it's impossible without having them perform to the same type of high standards. Now, for me, I learned about that later in my career. And and I'll kind of walk you through some some steps on this. So first and foremost, when you're when you're a young leader, you know, first, you know, a first line manager, for example, it's still all about you. And you don't realize that that there are these these, you know, others, maybe the support personnel, logistics personnel. I mean, you know, everybody, you know, it could be a nurse in an ER unit, you know, not that not the surgeon, you know, on the operating table. We can go on and on. It could be obviously, you know, your mechanic, you know, in an airplane, you know, vice the fighter pilot, him or herself. And so but but you learn as you grow kind of more mature and, and you have more experience, that nothing gets done without these. So, so my contention is you have to celebrate these individuals after the successes. And also you have to involve them in your kind of pre-operational planning. And in, for a CIA station, so we're in the Middle East somewhere, and we have, we have to launch an operation to try to recruit somebody. So I would sit down with our operations officers, if I was the station chief or the deputy station chief, and say, okay, here's what we're going to have to try to get after this target. We have to find a, maybe a bump, a Russian diplomat to try to recruit them. Well, you know what if we can't do that if we don't have any money to pay for the operation so in that pre-operational meeting maybe you have your finance officer Um, maybe there's some things on the support side that we need maybe we'll need some vehicles or or maybe we maybe the the russian likes to go to the ballet in xyz country and we have to get tickets so these these are these sound really simple but but you know it the, the way high performance units really operate it's a it's kind of a ballet of everybody together and and so i really wanted to make that point and, and then there's so many examples I have kind of from my time, for example, I, I use a lot of times when I was a base chief in Afghanistan, whether it was our, our medics, you know, or it was called a physician assistant, but it's obviously it's, it's a it's a nurse and, you know, and how they end up treating our personnel and keeping them kind of in the fight. Or, or you know, I think uh, there's a lot of examples of you know, support personnel. Maybe we're running a high value target operation. You know, I was I, I used one, I think, in Iraq. Um, so what about the support officer who got us the satellite imagery? Now, that's not me, the case officer, or, you know, along with, side with Naval Special Warfare, kicking down a door, grabbing someone out. It's on the front page of every paper in the Western world. But you know what? If we didn't have that, that support folks in the back, um, this wouldn't have happened. And so that's the whole process, a point of it. And, and I love challenging people because so, everyone has this in their lines of business. So, you know, you can sit in front of an audience and you ask every single person, who's your glue guy and glue gal? And they'll get it.
0: Absolutely. Well, and I think it's also you can look at even in really dynamic teams, oftentimes you have what are presumed to be those roles that are very out front, they're very aggressive, they're very open, you've got salespeople, right, where maybe some of the HR, some of the operations forces, or even sometimes, oftentimes, the marketing divisions, those teammates have a much quieter role, but too often marketing gets pitted against sales, right? Right. Well, the sales people are like, well, you know, without us, you wouldn't have a marketing budget. And the marketing folks are like, hey, without us, you know, showing the value of this product, you wouldn't have anything to sell, instead of realizing that as a business unit as a functional, highly performing team or one that strives to be, you have to have both roles, and you better find those people who are willing to really own that working in the shadows. And Carrie,
1: um, one of the things I think it's, and it's, it's important that someone like myself or yourself who were the tip of the spear. So, mm-hmm. and, and I'm going to sound silly. So, you know, if you want a definition of, you know, what a badass is. Okay. You know, we're, we got this right here. But, but as a leader, I actually don't believe that. You know, I'm not believing mm-hmm. that, that hype right there. Because I recognize there's a ton of people behind the scenes who are, frankly, just as important. Um, and, and maybe even more so. Maybe they're even better at their trade than, than I was at mine. So if someone like myself or yourself talking about that principle of the glue guy, or the glue gal actually has a lot of legitimacy because we were there with all the accolades, but you know what? There's people, you know, in, in the rear and the back who are just as important and you got to celebrate them.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of, one of your other principles, uh, that I love, and I mean, I just read this chapter several times simply because probably it's so closely aligned with how I view adversity. One of the things I always kind of, you know, half chuckle and earth grimace at the same time as say adversity will introduce you to yourself. Sure. And we work so hard, I think now culturally to make everything nice and soft and easy and perfect and, and are so risk avoidant. And yet the way you framed it is adversity is the performance enhancing drug to success. And I think anybody who's who's interested or who follows you on Twitter will see you are uh, obviously this this amazing professional who is also a huge baseball fan. Right. <laughs> and yeah, and in and in the book you you kind of mix this love for baseball in with CIA operations. Right. Um how did you see or how do you see those two things overlapping or even in conflict with each other when it comes to adversity and right. success and failure?
1: So, so look, I, I look at adversity as a super fuel and, and I, you know, this is mm-hmm. what I teach. So everything I do, I mean, this is what I experienced for myself because I failed a lot and I learned from it. It's what I teach my kids. Cause Hey, life is hard. They're going to go through some, some tough times. Um, and then the sports analogies are, are everywhere. So we can talk basketball. Michael Jordan got cut from his mm-hmm. high school basketball team. You know, we talk baseball where, and, and I, as, as, as you noted, you know, thanks for saying that I'm a huge baseball fan. I'm suffering a lot right now because every team oh, I yeah. follow <laughs> football, <or from> <laughs> the red Sox, but, but you look at – so I always I give an example of the 2003 Boston Red Sox where they, they lost a seven-game series to the Yankees on a walk-off home run by Aaron Boone in, in Game 7 of the American League Championship Series. The next year in the same championship series, you know, that's the you – know, and, and, and so they're in the exact same place. They're down three games to zero. And Kevin Millar, who was, who was a classic glue guy, in fact, gets up and he says, we're going to shock the world. And they win four straight, make it to the World Series, eventually win. There's no way that 2014 team does that if they hadn't gone through the adversity of '03. I, I, I believe that so strongly because you know life is tough and, and people are going to fail all the time, and it's how you learn from failing is how you grow. That's why I call it the super fuel. And you know there were so many times in, in, in my career where I, where I learned from such failure. And, and you know I, I'll give you just you know uh, you know two quick war stories, but we'll do it quickly. One is I was in Iraq in late 2002. Uh, as we, you know, I was on a team living in the north, in northern Iraq with the Kurds, as we were prepping for the invasion, we had recruited an Iraqi who was giving us order of battle information, which means disposition of Iraqi military units. Pentagon loved this. CIA headquarters loved this. I pushed this agent. This is a, this is an Iraqi, a foreigner, obviously, an, a, an agent. And by the way, CIA officers are case officers officers. An agent is someone we recruit. Mm. Um, but I pushed him too hard because Washington loved the information. I was too junior an officer. He ended up getting caught and tortured and killed. And, you know, I mean, I still see his face today. So that really weighed heavily on me. Years later in Afghanistan, I'm running a paramilitary base along the Pakistan-Afghanistan border, and we were looking for a high-value Taliban, high-value target. It's an individual who had killed two American CIA officers and also were still planning attacks. And we ran a very meticulous operation. And I remembered what, I, what had happened before. So I was very careful and, you know, and deliberate in my planning. I knew we would, we would end up getting this guy. Um, But I also didn't want to make those same mistakes. And so ultimately, when this individual, this Taliban member was taken off the battlefield, I remember sitting around the fire pit one night in eastern Afghanistan, having one of my officers on a satellite phone call the widow of of the CIA officer who had been killed by this individual two or three years earlier. And that was really a dramatic moment. And it all came together. And that's, you know, I even started thinking about, you know, wow, you know, I really learned from that failure. And this is what happened now. You know, my book is not this chest thumping book. Um, no. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, always, you know I, have, I have tons of friends in the Navy SEAL community and mm-hmm. I always joke that they get mm-hmm. their book deal when they go through BUDS training and they're always charging up the hill and they get pissed when I say this on podcasts. I do it all the time just to bug them. But, but that's not who I am because I really thought about you know, how much um, I learned from adversity and that's what I wanted to pass on with this principle.
0: No. And I would, I would hard underscore that as well. I, I did not find that. I found this very, uh, self deprecating if you will, but not in a disingenuous way. And one of the ideas that you also wrote about in the book, and it was, I think you were reflecting on when you had pushed your, your Afghani too hard to that great loss that you kind of summed part of that up as shit happens. I screwed up but it was not a calamity. Although that piece of it, the not a calamity, I think was about a different story. But for me, the mindset piece of, you know, shit happens. You're going to screw up. There are going to be times it's going to be a calamity. And there are other times you also have to, you have to have the humility to own your mess, own what you did wrong, right? Not do all the nonstop blame shifting. So that hopefully that next mistake will have maybe a lesser impact, which kind of leads me into, if you will, one of the principles or another one of the principles was win an Oscar. I love how you framed that this idea that, you know, it's okay for leaders to show vulnerability, right? We have to have that. And at the same time, we have to be extraordinarily mindful that as leaders, the way you react, the way you engage with your teammates, with your employees, can also have really significant repercussions. I think people twist this up sometimes because there's you know so much little sparkly Instagram stuff out there of just be yourself, be authentic all the time. Well, when you're in a leadership position, that doesn't mean you get to be a jack wagon. And that doesn't mean that you get to explode just because you're angry about something. But you also shared a story about after you had spent some time, I'll call it in the rock tumbler, struggling, that you you kind of self-selected out for a second. And right. if you don't remember this part, it was a cafeteria I do. Yeah. story. yeah.
1: So, so, look, so you know, when an Oscar, I mean, the idea is, you know, you really never have a day off or, or, or a minute mm-hmm. off as a leader. All eyes are going to be upon you all the time. So what you do matters. and And I caveat that, as you said before, that doesn't mean you can't be empathetic at times. You can show vulnerability, but you just have to kind of explain to your team what's going on. And and the example I give is we were on, you know, I was in Afghanistan and and I, you know, I went out with the, you know, with our paramilitary officer on a patrol into Taliban territory. And so we were gone for 36 hours and I come back and they, of course, you know, I was always wondering, so, you know, I was the base chief. So clearly they probably just drove around in circles and not wanting to get me killed and get in trouble, but no, I'm kidding. So we went and we visited some frontline positions. Um, We come back, hadn't slept for 36 hours. I had bed bugs. I was dirty. I was hungry. Ordinarily, and we went to the mess hall, ordinarily, I would eat with my team all the time because I wanted to see how they were doing. They, I want to hear about their kids. I want to see if they're working out enough. I mean, a year in Afghanistan is an extraordinary amount of time. So I wanted to make sure they were sharp, and I wanted to you know, also, also you know, uh, get a chance to hear from them. But in this case, I was exhausted and tired, so I went and I ate by myself in the mess hall. And, it was, and these, by the way, are the toughest SOBs on the planet, Mm-hmm. These are these are our paramilitary officers who are all you know special operations forces veterans. So they came from naval special warfare or from the army green berets. They had twenty years in, so they were kind of you know grizzled and and they got it. It was like you know I stole their dog. Um, they were they were like oh my god Mark is not talking to us. I, I'm just sitting by myself. Like what did we do? I mean I I thought I was back in high school. My initial reaction was not a good one because I said something like that. And then later on again around the fire pit I went in and I apologized to them because I said look sorry about that. Nothing is wrong. This was, this was, you know, we had a, it was a fantastic patrol, got a lot done, but, but, you know, I just needed to take a knee. But what I should have done is told you, Hey, Hey, you know, Hey guys, I, I'm a little tired now. I'm just going to go be by myself. Nothing's wrong. That was awesome. Thanks. I need some alone time. I didn't do that. And, and it was, it was an incredible moment for me. And I, I thought about it for years after that, because I just, you know, these are the toughest people on the planet and they almost kind of broke down. And so, you know, winning Oscar is, is, is something that, uh, that really kind of kind of stuck with me because it's a principle that just you know any leader can can really understand because all eyes are on you you know 24/7 I joke about you know it, and 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 I think Carrie you mentioned something you know that was important too like if you want a friend to you know you, you know you, you can't you can't I can't sit there and talk to my my teammates I'm sorry the the people I'm leading on this I always talk about if you want a friend get a dog so it's just you know it's 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 a principle I think it is really universal and uh And and I really believed in it and I had success with it, you know, after that, because I understood that, that, you know, all eyes were on me all the time.
0: Right. Well, and I think that what's so applicable even right now, that not only from that situation, but where you find us. Uh, as a country and even globally, as we record this today, we're still navigating this global pandemic where uh, so many people have been now thrown into remote work situations or working from home or maybe we're going to go back. Oops, nope, we're not going to go back. And what I'm starting to see, so so I'm not talking about healthcare providers right now because that's a whole different discussion, but when we have so much of our workforce right now who are working from home, feeling overwhelmed, people trying to onboard teammates, people are maybe leaving, maybe they're leaving different jobs, right? Or going to different organizations. So now, whether you're an individual contributor, you're a middle manager, you're a director who has a lot of experience or a VP, you know, that's trying to navigate this, this dynamic PNL and different cultures within your team. What would be your advice right now, Mark, knowing that, how do you help people communicate with clarity right. and with empathy when so many people right now are doing just what we're doing, right? They're That's on right. Zoom or, or Microsoft Teams nonstop, which means as soon as you hit leave meeting or leave Teams, you're sitting here along with your own demons, That's which right. is the equivalent of your special ops high performers at a, a lunch table by themselves, if you will, right. what would be your advice for people? What, for- what a
1: fantastic question! It's a great question because you know, nearly every time people go down that road, those demons pop up because you don't have that socialization. Maybe of being in front of someone, they're going to be wrong. They're they're making assumptions mm-hmm. that are wildly inaccurate because you only have this kind of Zoom interaction. So. You know, you know, there's so much kind of, you know, being being discussed today on, you know, kind of, you know, remote work and especially with companies. I think I saw that, you know, Facebook said that, you know, 50 percent of their employees are going to be doing remote work just in perpetuity. And maybe I'm getting that wrong, but it's you know, it's that that's that's the sentiment. And so we're going to have to struggle with this. So as a leader, as a manager, you know, you have to keep in touch with your employees. So this Zoom call, if I was on a Zoom call with, you know, 10 of my employees were doing the morning, you know, maybe a morning meeting. You're going to have to somehow follow it up with individuals later on on a one-on-one basis so you don't have those misperceptions and assumptions that are incorrect because people always go down that, that wrong path of, of kind of negativity. And so, you know, for me, and it's, it's always the kind, of, the kind of manager that I was, I was extremely hands-on, and so I would make an extra effort. And this is not to say mm-hmm. that, hey, mm-hmm. after Carrie, after the morning meeting you know, with 15 or 10 or 15 of our colleagues, you know, we're going to do another hour because everyone's time is precious. But hey, let's just catch up and do a quick 10 minute, you know, sync. And I just want to see how things are going just with you personally. I mean, that's how I would, I would you know, approach that. It um, doesn't right. take a lot of time out of my schedule, but I think it's really important because, again, that lack of being together, you know, is, uh, is, is, is I think there are some damaging aspects. It goes exactly to why there's a whole issue on kids in school. Kids have to be with each other. Well, I would argue that adults kind of have to as well,
0: Mm-hmm, uh,
1: mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, and so, and so there are some challenges now, but they can be overcome. It just takes a little effort, extra effort.
0: Right. I, I used to call that, well, I still do a little bit fearless leadership by walking around yep. that five minutes of face to face interaction and conversation can save you a week or two weeks worth of emails now. Yep. I, you know, I would almost suggest because so many of us are on zoom or teams or whatever the platform may be now, uh, give somebody a break and either send them an email or a text and say, Do you have five minutes to do a call, like get up, walk outside and let's chat on the phone. So they're not actually staring into a video, right? Like, hey, I'm just doing a check in, right? How's your family and kind of a walk and talk, right? Like, let's de-escalate the fatigue of, of the interaction that's combined with the lack of social physical interaction but you know you worked in very remote locations that you had to really depend on really clear concise communications in really a hostile environment so i think that a lot of the insights that you share in your book would be really really appropriate and applicable for anyone right now who finds themselves In this situation what one of the other things mark and good gosh i'm again i could talk to you all day about so many of these different these different principles and and your life experiences because they're they're just amazing but in your book, you talk actually about not only the value of, but the necessity of having diverse teams and that the, and you don't do this in a woke or weird touchy feely, soft velvet hammer way, right? Which man, I'm, I was like virtually high-fiving you as I, as I was reading this and listening to it. Um, because what, what you were able to experience, I think, and certainly what I've seen is that, the operationally right so we're talking the rubber meat in the road right output productivity end results that the most diverse teams actually give you the greatest operational and tactical advantage so can you share a little bit more about your experience with that Uh, because there's you know again you look at any social media and lord knows both the air force and the army just went through this whole you know hoopla about women wearing ponytails, which can we just say that the gold medal sharpshooter who is a first lieutenant army gal did right. it with a ponytail, but I digress. Yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about even your experience, whether it's culture, uh, yep. stereotypes, gender, all of that stuff.
1: So, so again, you know, in, in business terms, this would be, you know, what's our return on investment? I mean, exactly mm-hmm. what you said. So in, in operational terms for the CIA is I need to have my case officers go out on the street Run what's called a surveillance detection route, which is multiple stops over several hours, even several days where you know no one's following you. So maybe, you, you know, you change your clothes, you're in disguise, you get out of a car, you're on a bicycle, you're on foot, and ultimately get to an operational meeting where they're meeting an agent to obtain foreign intelligence that's going to help the United States, whether it's on counterterrorism, counterproliferation, you know, loose nukes, what the Russian president is thinking. But I need, I need my officer to get to point A all the way to point B, with a lot of stops in between. So what does that mean? Particularly in the Middle East, I found that our female operations officers were far more effective for the simple reason that there was just incredible misogyny amongst the the Middle Eastern intelligence chiefs, some of our adversaries. They didn't think a girl could be a spy. We knew that. And, and so my 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 response to that is well I'm going to put every female operations officer on the street. My most sensitive assets are not my our most sensitive assets in a station are going to be handled by a female operations officer who maybe in the Middle East can wear an abaya. That means she's fully you know covered. At the end of the day, we just ate their lunch on this, and it, you know, and it was just it was so obvious to do this. So my argument all the time, which which was effective in CIA, is you know that kind of diversity is really good because we need to spy on other people. We need to win. That's the only thing that, you know, you, you care about in the end. Now, of course, you care about diversity mm-hmm. for other reasons. Um, but this was a very effective argument that really actually did resonate amongst some of the old guard as well, as we're trying to change attitudes and cultures. I tell a great story in the book where, you know, it was it was exactly on this, where we had a female op- operations officer go out on a surveillance detection route. And unfortunately, she was, you know, someone from the from from our adversary saw her. And, what, and then we got a report from an agent who was a penetration of that security service saying that we saw X, Y, and Z female officer and she was married to, to another uh, US official at the embassy. So this individual, the male must be the spy. She couldn't really be doing it. So they put heavy surveillance then on the male officer who was like, hey, WTF, like what did I do? That that female officer, operations officer was still clean and still effective. And I love telling that story because it was just, just we beat them uh, you know because of their kind of backwards you know old school thinking, but I did it using um, you, know, uh, you know female officers who were, who were outstanding uh, and, and ultimately you know that that argument is is you know it's kind of you know progressed much more further because obviously mean, you do want a diverse you know workforce just for, sure. for all the reasons but for just pure and simple return on investment, what are we getting is such an easy call and so it's it's a fun story to tell and it's something that I really believed in
0: I know, and I love that story. And I think it is fascinating, because I think obviously, we all have our internal uh, biases, right? Cognitive biases, performance biases of of what we think somebody or some team should look like, right? A typical stereotype of uh, a CIA officer, maybe that kind of cookie cutter model of maybe a super well educated East Coaster or, you know, something else, right? Like standard issue, you know, mod one mark zero CIA officer. And yet what what you were able to experience firsthand, and probably so many others as well is that different the different experiences that people bring to the table, and different ways of thinking different ways of problem solving, that having those diverse experiences, not simply framing it as we have to check the box is what actually matters to all of us. And whether we're talking in the, the national security space, the, the CIA space, in cyber, all of these different, in, in the IT world, right? Problem solving. We just simply problem solve uh, in different ways. And that's good, sure.
1: right? I have a great example of this. What I, what I would do when I, so it's every time I took over a team, so if it was, you know, when I got to be a little more senior, it was harder, but I could still do it amongst maybe the senior management team, but I'd gather 10 or 15 individuals together. And what I would do is I would go around the room. I say, tell me something about yourself that that has nothing to do with work. Someone's mm-hmm. a concert pianist. Someone played college soccer. You know, you know, you know. Someone has a side business. Um, you know, selling clothes. Someone is a is a you know is a rapper. Someone is a DJ business on the side. Why does this matter? Because again, in our job as a CIA case officer, very similar to the sales world, is I need to put my officer in front of a target. So let's say we have a I don't. know, a Chinese military officer, right? And that Chinese military officer, we know from our targeting study, we need to recruit them. They have information we want. We know this individual loves soccer. I have in my stable of officers, uh, a female officer who played college soccer and won a national championship. There you go. That's how you marry them up. Um, so, right. you know, it's the best athlete for this. And and But if I didn't have that discussion with amongst my team to get that kind of diversity of their experiences... I wouldn't know who to put, you know, against a problem set where where now it's easy. Now we have to get in front of this Chinese military officer. Well, we take someone who played college soccer, won a national championship, you know. And so if we have to bump that Chinese intelligence officer at a reception or, you know, they have something that is that is that is just incredibly in common. And then we say, oh, by the way, I have tickets in London to the next Liverpool game, you know, you know, and you know what? I'm going to bring my family. You know, you want to bring your family there. Boom, you're off and running. It's just so easy to do that but if you didn't have that discussion with your team in advance and hey see that diversity of of experiences and and and, and talents you know you wouldn't be able to kind of you know go down that road so that, that was a technique i always used i used it to really to good effect
0: yeah right one-on-one know your people yep that's how you that's how you build those synergies that's how your whole team becomes a force multiplier and hopefully is really effective which is interesting when you're looking to build teams though and again, I think this is pretty applicable across every organization and in every industry, one of your jobs uh, in the CIA did involve recruiting people to spy for the United States. So a simple question to a complex answer, if you will, how, how would you even discover? So maybe this actually wouldn't be applicable to a lot of other industries, but let's just frame it under recruiting. Sure. How would you even know because this is applicable? How would you know? that someone would be willing to do that. What were the characteristics that you looked for?
1: Yep. And so, so look, so I was, I was a CI operations officer. I have a big, you know, down in my basement, which, you know, nobody cares about. There's a whole bunch of fancy medals based on operations I ran, based on some agents I recruited. Now that doesn't mean that I'm the most, you know, clever, wily individual. I couldn't just walk up to you, Carrie, and say, I'm going to recruit you to do something you don't want to do. There's some proclivities. There's something, there's some motivation Mm -hmm. you have so our job was to find those motivations. And so traditionally in the Cold War, when it was the United States versus the Soviet Union, you know, we recruited Soviet Union uh, officials because they hated communism. Um, you know, they believed in capitalism. And, and, and to, to some extent, those are still motivations now because America is, you know, does promote, you know, human rights and, and, and democracy. And so a lot of times we can recruit someone because they live in terrible autocratic systems. But there's other times, for example, a foreign official wants to send their kids to school in the United States or they have maybe some of their maybe their children has a medical need and we could help that way. But so you have to get close to someone to find those things that make them tick that ultimately would lead them down the line to to what they would do. They would betray their countries for the United States. Now, and we Mm -hmm. do this over a process of time, whether it's, you know, six months, eight months to sometimes even years where you're going to walk someone down the line where they're going to do something. Um, but, but when they make that step, you know, you've taken them down the path. So it's not something that's that shocking. So, you know, for example, it would be something like, you know, someone has, has a vulnerability. There's, they have some motivations and you say, you know, Hey, you know, there's, there's this foreign policy issue that's going on now. You know, I wrote a paper on this, uh, or I have to write a paper on this. Can I get your views on it? And maybe someone speaks a little bit out of school later on, you, that, you know, when you come back and they say, Hey, I got a big award for this, you know, you know, can I share this with somebody, let me just take you to dinner. And so, and you kind of, you lead them down that way, but it's all based on, 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 motivations. I talk about case officering, you know, being an operations officer, it's not a psych 101 class. It's a psych 501 class. I mean, it's, 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 it's you know, it's super psychology in, in, in graduate school, which, which made it so interesting to me, especially with, after you recruit someone, guess what? Their life is in your hands. And if, and if we're talking right. about about some countries, which, which the sanction for espionage is death, you, know, you have you have a pretty serious role, and, and I tell a story in, in, in the book about an, uh, an agent that we had recruited. I was training this agent, you know, in Europe on some communication procedures before we went back into the Middle East in, in his home country, which was a huge enemy of the United States. Sanction was death. There was no doubt if he was caught. And he sat me down one day, and this is downtime. This is the time I'm I'm supposed to be getting to know this this person. We're going through our communication procedures, and he says, "Mark, he said, you know, you know, I, I know you're going to come to my country, and you're going to think about me maybe every once every." you know, a couple weeks when we're supposed to meet. Uh, but other times you're going to be watching, you know, Armed Forces Network and anyone who's been in the military, the diplomatic service knows what that is. That's the U.S. military channel where you're, they're playing all these, you know, American football games all the time. So you're going to watch Armed Forces Network. You're going to be doing things with your family. You probably have other things that, the, you know, that, that you have to do. So you're not going to think about me every day, but you know what? I'm going to think about you every single day when we're back in there together, because if you make one mistake, I'm going to die. and My whole family's going to die. Right. And that right. sense of responsibility was astounding to me. As a, as a you know, as a, as a junior operations officer, and I took that as a teaching point for all the officers I then managed, kind of uh, you know down the line. Because again, it's a you know, it's a it's a it's a personal relationship. It's a you know, it is a relationship you have with another human being um, who you maybe have recruited, at, or maybe you took it over from another officer who did the recruitment. But ultimately, this life, this person's life is in your hands. Pretty extraordinary.
0: That is extraordinary, and I think that also underscores uh that depth of responsibility and maturity that is actually required when you're in these roles i know i look at and what has been fascinating for me to watch over the last six six months let's call it six months or so there are so few people who even understand what's happening right now with us pulling out of afghanistan and what is happening to the people who risk to everything in order to help us over the last 20 years. And and by that, I mean, a lot of the interpreters that we worked with. And I'm again, probably thoughts for a different day. Um, But this is where having an educated uh, country, And people who maybe can, can lift their eyes up a little bit to more the 20,000 foot level, 30,000 foot level and say, how are all of these pieces? How are we working together to create a safer future? Not only for ourselves, but for our friends and allies, uh, you know, misinformation is a bad thing and being informed is a good thing.
1: I, I agree. And so, so Carrie, you know, I mean, my life as a CIA officer was about people. And so it's mm-hmm. my relationships, mm-hmm. as we talked about with my officers, but also also with our assets. And and so I, I think now to you know to the Afghans, you know who who were left behind. I think there's there's almost seventy thousand Afghan interpreters or aid workers, those who help the United States you know government, whether it's military, the intelligence community, the State mm-hmm. Department, the diplomatic service. There's a lot of people left behind there. You know, in in when we when we withdrew from Vietnam, we actually pulled out one hundred thirty thousand Vietnamese. There is a fraction of that that's happening now. So a lot of us who served in Af- Afghanistan, you know, remember the faces of these individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, so I worry on a moral sense, it bothers me tremendously. And I talk about it a lot now. I was on the radio yesterday talking about it. In, in, in fact, you know, making a plea for the U.S. government to do more. But also there's a sense of, look, this is Afghanistan was not our last conflict. And so those of us, particularly in the intelligence service, are going to have to go to a future conflict and try to gain the trust of people to help us. And they're gonna say one thing that when we show up they're gonna say you know what about Afghanistan you left all those people behind and it's, it's gonna be a hard res- you know we're gonna have a tough response on that uh, and so that's something that that is it is bothering me you know there's a policy decision to, to leave Afghanistan we can debate mm-hmm. that all day um, sure. but what we have to do is treat those who helped us you know to, to do right by them and I'm really worried that this, this became such a rushed process um, that we're gonna see some horrible you know scenes in the, in the, in the upcoming You know, weeks and months. There was a there's a report today in in the, uh, you know, in, in in the Washington Post or New York Times or wherever saying that the latest intelligence assessment says Kabul could fall between within 30 and 90 days. You know, it's not just about leaving, but it's about doing right by the people who helped us. And I'm really, really concerned about that.
0: I, I am as well. I think, you know, to your point, there are some, there are some unfortunate consequences that I feel like we are reflect. you know, looking back, are going to have some lessons learned that we have already learned before that now somehow have been discarded. Uh, it's, I hate to say it's above my pay grade. I'm certainly not in a policy or decision making position. Um, but it is really hard to watch and, you know, knowing you and having friends who have served so much time over there, trying to make it a, a bit of a better place. Uh, it's a really, really difficult to watch, but, um, I do want to, uh, and, in, in respectful of your time. I do just have a couple other things. One of, one of the things that, and it's going back to your book. So I know that's a bit of a, an abrupt pivot, but. Uh, in in your book you provide these sections at the end of every chapter that essentially summarize some key points and action items and you provide a checklist in some of them which of course as a former fighter pilot you can imagine I'm not only a, a huge supporter of but also a user of um and which you at the CIA call these Mad Minutes so how important was that for you and did you have to argue against or for or were you like no this is this is just going in how important was that asset or building that into the book sure. for you and sure, how did you sure. use checklists even at the cia
1: sure um so so the, the, i mean the mad minute what it means you know it, you know for a cia operations officer is you have a you have a minute you have a sorry you have a meeting with an agent but there's a, there you have about 60 seconds at the beginning of this meeting to go over kind of critical questions and critical things communication plans really critical intel in case something goes wrong and, and, and you have to, you have to uh, abort the meeting. So it's just the idea of, okay, I, I need 60 seconds of your time to go over the key facets of, of, of what we got to go over. And that's why I use that terminology, the mad minute, but look, you know, my war stories and I tell great stories. This is fun. Again, we, we could talk hours on this. I'm sure you have even better stories from, from your life uh, in public service, but war stories are fun. The principles are good. None of it matters if people don't apply it. And right. so, you know, that mad minute piece is just, okay, Hey, I'm going to tell you about the glue guy or, or the process monkey. So now tell me, how does that, what does this mean for you? So it's it's challenging, you know, the, the, you know, the reader, the listener, um, or, you know, if we're, if we're, if we're doing stuff in person to just say, okay, this is what I just talked to you about now. Okay. You know, what does this, what does this mean for you all? And, and how can you do better? How can you employ this? Um, I like the mad minute just because again, it's a 60 seconds, boom, it's quick. Um, It's interactive. And so that that part, too, is really important to me, you know, because because, again, I can, as you can see, I can sit and talk all day. But the really the really fun part is when you interact with people, which is hard to do over Zoom calls, of course. Um, Right. Right. In terms of in terms of checklists, it is absolutely critical. An operational meeting for for a CIA officer, you have to do several things. You have to get your communications plan right. You have to ask about safety of the of the agent. You have to get the foreign intelligence. You know, what do they have? What have they stolen for us? There are key things that you have to have and so there is a, certainly a checklist. And if you roll back to the, to the office, to the station, after a long surveillance detection route, hours in the street, and you miss something like that, number one, you're going to feel t- terrible. Number two, your boss is going to be like, no, what part of training did you, did you miss on this? Exactly. I mean, these yeah. are Indispensable parts, processes that, that we have to do. You can't mess this up. You can't get it wrong. So the checklist, and, and as we prep for an operational meeting, just as you're on the flight, flight line, same thing. Like you do have a checklist, you actually will mm-hmm. carry it with you. You know, maybe in some fashion where you don't get caught if, you know, or it's not going to you know, fall out of your pocket. But there is a certain checklist for every operational meeting that you go over that is it's indispensable and, and failure to do that can have really bad consequences. And it's just again, it's something that you do, period. Um, right. So uh, so yeah. that, that the checklist part made sense for me.
0: Yeah, I love it. And I love that they are short and brief and that they kind of conceptualize that, especially when you're working with people. And again, the people who are listening now who might be feeling super overwhelmed, or they're like, ugh, I literally, like my company just embarked on a huge operational excellence program or a new strategic plan. I don't have time for something extra. And I would submit to you that you always have time for one extra minute and know that, no different than our checklists, flying right. high-performance fighters or, or any aircraft in the military, all of those checklists at every step, no matter how long or short that checklist is, is essentially a lesson that has been written in blood, right? That's There's right. a reason there. A reason, yeah. And what that also allows you to do and allowed your teams to do is that it then takes away the brain work or the load of trying to remember, not to forget something, right. and it operationalizes it so that you can use that energy and that teamwork and and the smarts of your people to do the really demanding hard thinking and the hard work and whether that's in a moment of chaos in in times of uncertainty or change or tumult so that's I love that you included the mad minute I thought that was awesome thank you for doing that uh so I want to wrap up with just a round of what I call rapid fire questions so super easy questions kind of kind of superfluous but just so we get to know a little bit more about you. So I follow you on social, and you're a super heavy lifter, love lifting, throwing the heavy stuff. What is your go to music that you listen to when you work out? Metallica. Nice. That's, that's good. I, yeah, I got no pushback on that. Uh, who do you think of as a mentor? And what? What did you need to learn from them?
1: So a mentor, uh, this is, well, it's not exactly rapid fire. I talk about it in the book, a guy by the name mm-hmm. of Charlie Seidel, who is a, a mentor of mine who's passed away now. Um, but the reason why he was so integral to my life is he understood about taking care of his people. So when I talk about be a people developer, um, he mentored me. He took care of me when I came back from Iraq with really bad PTSD, mm-hmm. um, hosted me and my family to his cottage in Cape Cod for two weeks. Uh, and he's someone who tried to kind of certainly brought me along. So my mentor would be a guy by the name of Charlie Seidel.
0: Awesome, that's great. Uh, who plays you in a movie?
1: I'll say Denzel my favorite actor of all time.
0: Well, he's done some good national security movies, so you know. Man on Fire
1: can... is, is Man on Fire is a great movie, although he's he's kind of a washed up CIA guy who's has some bad drinking issues. So that's not me.
0: Um, but, <laughs> uh, we'll
1: say Denzel.
0: Awesome. All right, so we have hundred dollars and a full tank of gas and a day off. Where are we going to go?
1: right where I am now in the Outer Banks in North Carolina.
0: You know, what's so funny is that so many people that I know who have done really hard things or are high performers, usually when they think about what their escape is, it's usually to the beach or to the mountains.
1: Yep, well, and there's something about the ocean for me that's soothing, you know, it's funny, and and I've had some kind of mind some some health struggles uh, of my Mm -hmm. own um, dealing with traumatic brain injury, with TBI from some stuff that I suffer with. And I I remember talking to, another member it was former special forces in the army. And, and he, he actually said there's real science behind the therapy behind, behind the ocean and water. Uh, but for me, it's my happy place when I've been in dark places, whether it's in the back of a pickup truck in Afghanistan, you know, in Helmand province, you know, driving 13 hours um, or, or in a helicopter, freezing my butt off in, in Iraq, I would actually think to the beach. I, I, I have a vision of it as well. So I, you know, I, I would visualize that. So this is my happy place in the outer banks.
0: That's awesome. Mark, I'm going to I'm going to actually ask you one more question um, as a bit of an add on, because you did have such a, an illustrious and dynamic career it's been you've had a couple of years now since you've retired. I know uh, for other people who have been in and I'm I'm using air quotes when I say this, I'll let people kind of fill in the blank who have been involved in high tempo dynamic operations that leaving that or or hanging up the sneakers walking away from it can be either very hard in the moment, a very fast and easy decision. And or one that once the decision is made, and maybe six months has gone by or a year has gone by, they can find themselves a little bit adrift. Where have you found yourself in in all of that?
1: Well, first of all, uh, I think I'm okay with leaving. So, so, you know, I, I am at peace with that, but I think because of the following reason I got promoted to the senior ranks where, but the last, you know, four or five years of my career, wasn't that fun because Mm -hmm. while I, while I had a really kind of sexy title, I was the acting operations chief over Europe and Eurasia. That sounds great. What that really meant was personnel issues, budgets, resources, and not seeing an operation on the street. I mean, I haven't, you know, I haven't run a surveillance detection route or met an agent for several years because I was just too senior. So right. so when I finally left, it was the memory of, I don't want to do this anymore um, because, you know, a lot because it just the job, you know, despite the fancy title, wasn't that fun. I miss being a case officer. I miss being a frontline, first line manager. Um, you know, it's probably akin to, you know, you know if, you're, if, you, if you get promoted too far in the Navy, you're not flying anymore. Maybe you are, right. but you're really not right. flying as much. Um, so, the, the uh, and ultimately, it, it's, it's just that camaraderie of those, of those times. The worst place that I ever was was the time where I had you know, the most amazing experiences in terms of this camaraderie of men and women who, who I served with. So I was at peace with leaving uh, because the job just wasn't as fun. But what made the job fun, even in those, in those times a, a, at the end, was the mentorship opportunities, and which is mm-hmm. why I wrote the book, because now I'm able to right. still do this. And, and, and so, you know, th- that personal interaction on passing the torch to the next generation that meant a lot to me. I met every man and woman who walked in CIA headquarters, if, you, know, it, it, you know, responsible in the end, Europe and Eurasia. Before that, I was deputy ops chief for the, for the Middle East. I'd meet everybody. That's what got me going because um, the ability for me to pass the torch. Because again, those fancy medals in, in, in my basement that you know everyone wants to go see, they're gathering dust. I go down there with the scotch and say, boy, I was so great. Nobody cares about that. Right, and, and that's right. not going to be my legacy. My legacy w- would be, I developed other leaders you know, who, were, who were working for me. Um, and people have told me that. And, and, you know, I had a book signing recently and, and someone who worked for me in Afghanistan came, I, you know, I was in Afghanistan, you know, nine years ago. And, and they told my son, Hey, Mark was the best leader we ever had. And, and then, and then later on when I asked him about it he, and I said, why he goes, well, you know, you prepared me for, for what, for, and, and taught me how to lead. And, and all the, and, he, and then he went over some things that he does that I taught him um, how to do. And I was like, you know what, all those fancy medals mean nothing. I'm, my legacy will be in, in the leadership field. And so that's why I'm excited to be doing this 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 kind of stuff now. But look, I, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't miss the camaraderie. I mean, we were on the tip of right. the spear. Um, you know, the, you know, the nation calls and we always respond. I always I always raise my hand. You know, my kids knew I'd come home one day and they'd say I've got to go away for a while, and I come back six months later. But, you know, meanwhile I'm on a Tharaya phone, or the satellite phone, calling them from you know Baghdad International Airport as I just landed with you know with Naval Special Warfare, and they're looking as you know the war is kicking off, and so that's kind of stuff really kind of got me going. Can't do that anymore. I got too old. I remember flying around in a helicopter when I was 43 years old in Afghanistan and my, my back was killing me. I'm like, I can't do this anymore.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you think it's never going to happen to you when you're, when you're 25, 27 year old years old, you look at the 43 yeah. year olds and go, dang, that's oh, old. And now yeah. you look back at 43 and you're like, Ooh, I was, I was in it. I was doing the stuff.
1: I, I well, I'm 52. Now I felt much better at 43 than I do at 52, but I'm still trying um, to work out. And, 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 and I have this, you know, whole silly thing on Twitter about, you know, benching heavy and raising some money for traumatic brain injury uh, charities. And so uh, I still, I still have that kind of, that's a little bit of ego in me where I got to still try to do some things I shouldn't be able to be doing.
0: I get it. And it's that pursuit, right? The pursuit of next, the pursuit of improvement, even if, even if your numbers maybe aren't, maybe for you, they are, but you're, you're not throwing the same numbers, the same amount of weight that you were 10 years ago. You're still still trying to hang in there, right? Still doing- I, I drove down to the Outer Banks
1: the other day. I'm, I'm here now. And so, you know, usually we stop several times and my my family drove separately. But I'm like, I'm going to try to do a straight shot five and a half hours. <laughs> Why? <laughs> you know, my was, in fact, I had to go to the bathroom about halfway through. I'm like, I'm not stopping. I'm doing this. Doctor, I was really excited. I was like, I did it. And My wife later on was like, Yeah,
0: would
1: like, you do that for? Uh, meanwhile, I get there, I'm starving. You know, I haven't yeah, eaten yeah. There's no food in the house. And so, but you know what? I did that five and a half hour drive because I was just, I, I challenged myself. I was going to do it. And I was really happy about it too. So oh my gosh, I needed, I needed some, I need some therapy to figure out why I did that.
0: Well, you circle back for me with me a year from now when, when your knees are hurting too much. So you're stopping having lifting and you've discovered the sport of triathlon. And oh. then you'll be like, oh, I can challenge myself in three different ways. <laughs> and your wife will be like, you're crazy. There you go. It's That's a little psychotic, psychotic. Hey, Mark, if people want to get in touch with you or follow you on your journey, where can they find you? Where's the best place for them to find you?
1: So, well, first of all, the book, Clarity and Crisis, on the land, the book landing page is clarityandcrisisbook.com. It's available on Amazon. So I have to throw that out there. But for me, it's on Twitter. It's at mpolymer. Um, and I'm a prolific Twitter user, as, as Carrie, as you know. So I'll talk about everything from leadership to baseball to some mm-hmm. politics. So don't get too mad. You know, I love talking about food and dive bars. I'm all over the place. It certainly drove my publisher crazy because they're like, you know, stop being so outspoken. But that's who I am, and I, and I have fun doing it. And when and, and I actually you know respond to lots of you know DMs, direct messages. And so i that's how you and I you know I think I wrote you right. a, a yeah. DM on Twitter. And I, I reach out to folks all the time. And so I like interacting with kind of the public. Again, part of the whole the, the, you know the, the, what what drives me now is explaining to people what the intelligence community, what the CIA is about. Um, so ultimately, you know, I, I'm very approachable. Um, I'll talk to anyone, and so it's it's Twitter again at M Polymer.
0: Mark, thanks for taking the time, uh, really today, carbon out time today. I know you're I know you're vacationing with your family uh, to share not only your story but your perspectives, definitely your lessons learned. And it might make you a little uncomfortable, but I'd also like to thank you for your service and definitely your family's service as well. You know, it takes it takes a whole unit to keep not only our country but you our people uh safer our allies and our partners safer freer and you know leave the world just maybe a little bit better place to be so thank you we have a debt of gratitude for folks like you i appreciate you
1: well thanks so much it's very kind those those words were were very generous i would say the same for you as well so um you know we all kind of just did our job you know that's, that's just part of the the, 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 the DNA certainly that, that I have and of course you have as well, but it's been wonderful being on today. I really enjoyed it. We could have probably talked for several hours. So
0: Thank you. I know. I know. Maybe next time, maybe, okay. maybe post pandemic. Maybe there we'll do that. All right. Well, thanks so much, Mark. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. And thank you so much for listening this week. If you enjoy the show, make sure you take a second to subscribe so you automatically get my new shows when they drop. Also, if you enjoyed the conversation with Mark today, I'd love if you left us a review so that more fearless leaders like you can discover us. It takes less than 60 seconds and it really makes a difference. And I also love reading the reviews actually. And while you're at it, I'd love to hear from you personally on my social channels, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And of course, you can always find me at www.carrylorenz.com. Finally, my new book, Spana Control, is out in the world and it's available on Amazon, iTunes, Audible, Target, Barnes & Noble, and your favorite indie bookstore. And I'm super excited about this one. I think it's going to be extraordinarily helpful to you on a personal level. And it can also help your family members, your friends, and the teams you lead or coach to identify their priorities, find focus, navigate obstacles and find greater success, even during times of chaos, uncertainty, and change. So thank you again for sharing your time and being here today. I am glad you're here.